there, this is Fiona, one of the co-hosts of the DM's Book Club, a weekly book club podcast where we read about some Dungeons and & Dragons and discuss how we might include it in our role-playing campaigns. In this episode, I interviewed Ben Reagan, a freelance writer and content creator for D&D 5th Edition. Better known by the alias Never Not DM, Ben specializes in creating dynamic monsters, cinematic subclasses, and unique magic items for dungeon masters to share at their tables. He's also the author of the hit Kickstarter Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae, which is currently a bestseller on Drive-Thru RPG. Ben's latest Kickstarter, Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook, is launching next week, April 26, and I highly recommend checking it out. Ben, as you'll hear in the interview, is incredibly passionate about making memorable and exciting encounters for D&D adventures. And honestly, best of luck to him, and I wish him well for his upcoming projects. You can find all the links to Ben's work and the upcoming Kickstarter for Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook in the episode description. Hope you enjoy, and see you on the flip side. So, um, the first question is, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who are you, and what do you do? everybody. Um, my name's Benjamin Reagan, better known as Never Not DM on Twitter with all my content. I am a 23-year-old content creator doing it full-time. I live in uh, Virginia in the United States, and I am currently taking a break from law school. I finished my first semester and decided I wanted to really focus on my D&D content. I had a successful Kickstarter in the fall, but I really wanted to see if this was something I wanted to do longer term. So I decided to take a year off and just focus on content creation. I guess we start with the big question. How did you get into role-playing games in general? Are you more of a player or a GM? Uh, well, if you couldn't tell from like the Twitter handle and everything, <laughs> I, I'm a forever DM, but I will, you know, b- break the immersion. I do play in a weekly game so (gasps) technically i know i know i am actually not never not dm but i am but mostly not dm is not like very catchy so (laughs) uh, it's already taken somebody else has got that (laughs) yeah i used to actually be a professional magic the gathering player and i put professional in quotation marks because i was never like one of the greatest never like world champion or anything like that i played on the like basically like kind of like the rookie circuit i had some good finishes played on a pro tour you know top eight at a grand prix but professional magic for anyone who doesn't know is incredibly stressful the <laughs> very best standard player in the world brad nelson has only a 72 percent win rate best standard player in the entire world undoubtedly and to make the, you know, the top eight of a tournament, which is kind of the glory and the money and everything, mm-hmm. you need usually like an 85%, 80% win rate. Mm-hmm. And so you're just traveling to these massive events and you're paying a bunch of money to travel. You'll go to maybe 12 events a season. And I was getting maybe three top eights in a Star City event a season. Right. So there'd be so many tournaments you just go to and you do poorly, luck's not on your side. And it's just such a stressful environment. So I decided to quit and stop playing magic professionally and playing magic basically at all. And I was pretty lonely because basically all of my friends were magic players. Right. Of course. And my girlfriend told me, you know, you should go and like look for some clubs and some stuff to go do. And I had always known D&D, you know, D&D and magic, they're pretty much like they're entwined. entwined. You've got Ravnica yeah. and Theros and mm-hmm. all the sets that move together. They're both at Wizards companies yeah. and, or Wizards IP. And so D&D had always been something, you know, I spent a lot of time in game shops. Tons of magic players play D&D. Mm-hmm. So I was working at Barnes and Nobles, just making some money for a summer job. And I met a girl, she walked in, was looking to buy a DMG. I talked to her and she told me about a club at my university that I was attending at the time. Mm-hmm. Didn't know there was one. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is perfect. This is exactly what my girlfriend said I should you know, yeah. be looking into doing. Turns out that girl, uh, Emma, ended up being my very first DM. Oh, amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it's completely coincidentally, I saw her like in June when she came into Barnes and Noble and I started playing in September and she was just running her first campaign. That's oh, that is such a beautiful sort of narrative as well, giving the the DM's guide and then going in to play that game. That's so amazing. So, well, what what is it about Dungeons and Dragons for you then? Obviously, I know as you sort of said, you're you're full time creating your own content, but what is it that sort of really got you into just, I guess, writing D and D content then? 
the instant I sat down to play D&D, I knew I wanted to be a DS. I knew I wanted to be behind the screen. That, that was, that was exactly what I wanted. It was, it was what was calling to me. And a necessity of being a DM is making some of your own stuff. You know, of course we, you know, no shame at all. I use modules all the time, mm-hmm. but you know, you're never going to run a module like just straight from the book. You're going to adapt it a little to your character, add in your own custom magic item, maybe a different zombie or a different boss. And so a lot of that kind of, it started kind of naturally from that being in the DM seat, creating my own campaign and my own worlds and my players really enjoying it and me thinking, well, maybe I want to make some bigger stuff. But the real catalyst that told me, you know, I could do this mm. was the Book of Beautiful Horrors. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No, I haven't. Please uh, enlighten us. So the Book of Beautiful Horrors is a homebrewed bestiary that was made by uh, Nathan Hasale. And it is a book of monsters based on Witcher, which are absolutely amazing. One of my favorite franchises, love the games, love the books, love the TV show. Mm -hmm. And you did this entire fan-made book. I think it's the best homebrew supplement Mm. ever, ever made. Anything I've read, nothing from Cobalt Press or MCDM, I think truly comes close to this book. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I want to do this. Yeah. I run so many of the monsters in that book and just absolutely love them. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is, this is it. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And I just started making more content. I started a podcast that ended up not working out, but with what I learned from that and what I learned from homebrew create from like reading the book of beautiful horrors and then getting into other people's homebrew mm-hmm. was, you know, looking and creating my own content. So that's kind of where I really got that first start. It was a progression from a DM, then seeing outside of the official materials yeah. and then going, I can do this. I want to do this. That's awesome. I love that, like getting inspired by other people's homebrew and like, I love this. I want to do that. I think that's such a, a beautiful thing in the sense of like just creative supporting creators and stuff like that. So yeah, that's mm-hmm. kudos to you. Going into like writing new content then, where do you get sort of inspiration from? I know you sort of just talked about The Witcher, which I can 100% agree. Yeah. It's it's like let's 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 mind that for all the D and D content as well. But do you particularly have like not necessarily a method? But if you're thinking of like I want to write something, is there like is it TV shows? Is it music? Is it films? I'm a huge fantasy sci-fi nerd. I you know I grew up watching Star Trek and Star Wars with my dad, reading Lord of the Rings, and you know now I'm the biggest Brandon Sanderson fan of all time. I've read everything that man has ever written and will read everything that man ever writes. He's, I don't understand him. Uh, (laughs) I don't understand how he writes so much, Mm -hmm. but to me, where I kind of get a lot of my ideas is I I'm a top down designer. So really there's kind of like two big philosophies in kind of creative design for D and D and you know, magic, which is what something else that shaped a lot of my design is top down is basically you build from an idea. So an example would be, I want to build, I want to make a oath of blossoms paladin. I start with this idea, this, this theme that I've got, and then I build mechanics to fit that theme. Mm -hmm. A bottom up designer is going to build from a mechanical standpoint. So they're going to start, I want a familiar that is invisible. And that's what I want to base my subclass around. And then they're going to build themes and mechanics and flavor to fit the mechanic that they start with. So you either start with the with the flavor or you start with the mechanic. So that's you know, top down, bottom up. And so I'm a top down designer. I start with an idea, mm-hmm. a name. One thing that I do when I'm making subclasses is I will just sit there and I will have a pen in my hand and I will write names that come to my head. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how I did a seasonal oath series of subclasses mm. that's uh, you know freely available. 
one thing that I did there was I just started, I wrote Oath of Summer. And I'm like, well, Oath of Summer means Oath of Winter, Oath of Fall, Oath of Spring. And then I built mechanics based on, I kind of wrote down, you know, what does spring feel to me? Well, it's kind of healing. We're looking kind of cherry blossoms and wind, life. And so then I built mechanics to fit that theme. Hmm. And I think that's probably my strongest aspect of design is flavor is building flavor into every piece of my subclass or my monster to kind of make it a very cohesive, very thematic whole. Mm-hmm. I think that's what people like about my content is that it is very flavorful. Mm-hmm. I do struggle sometimes coming up with new mechanics or new ideas because I'm not starting there. I'm not no. very thinking mechanically. I'm thinking, what theme can I do and then build mechanics to mm. fit that? No, and I completely see that as well. And sometimes it's not like reinventing the wheel. You, you know, if you, like you said, you're putting what you think works together and just trying it out. I, yeah, people, people don't necessarily always need new mechanics. I, I completely appreciate uh, from that point of view. So is there a particular area then that you really like creating homebrew content about? Because you just mentioned obviously subclasses there, monsters, or is it just more like whatever a theme takes you, you just go, right, this could be a subclass, this could be a monster. I think probably my favorite thing to create is player options, but I, I do really love monsters. Yeah. My thing with player options is that I want to stay away from making homebrew classes. I at one point actually made someone a custom homebrew class and I've never released it because it was horrible because <laughs> it's so mechanical right. and for thematic purposes, I feel like you can wrap so much stuff up in subclasses mm. instead of making it a new original class. And so I really like these player options, like subclasses, races, uh, lineages, is because those are the things that I feel like really excite people. They see that and they're like, I want to make, you know, they yeah. take a look at my, you know, maybe my dream domain cleric, or they're looking at my Professor Gilroy's handbook of heroes that's got 20 different subclasses. And they're like, oh, I can build this character, this character, this character. And that's, that's something that I want anyone who sees my content to feel like. I want them to be able to look at this subclass or this race and be like, I can make a character for this, which is a little, a little kind of more different approach because a lot of the stuff that I release in like books, not just on Twitter or Patreon is more DM focused, mm-hmm. but I feel like on what I release to Twitter and on my Patreon is, is sometimes more player focused mm. because I want people to have that reaction. I want to build a character that can fit this, you know, that fit that vision. I like that. Yeah. Cause a lot of the time when you, you are creating your first character or you're talking to people and they're like, I want to play someone who's like this, I want to play someone who's like that. So that totally makes sense that you want to have like you said, that flavorsome stuff where people get excited because suddenly the, the options sort of blossom and then they go, oh, I can I can do all these things for So yeah, I totally see your point on that. That's really, really I think that's really interesting. So yeah, I, do you find a lot of people uh, who do use your content or do sort of subscribe are mostly players or is it more of a 50-50 split between GMs and players then? It's definitely more GMs than players. But I think that that kind of gets to a, a central issue that I find in the D&D and really the tabletop RPG community as a whole is this idea that DMs aren't players. Mm. You know, we, we divide people DM and player, and it's an easy distinction to make. But I think so many people forget, you know, DMs are players too. Now, they're the player with the most responsibility, the most power at the table, but they still are players. And a lot of DMs want to play games because DMing is hard. It is. It's just, (laughs) it's something that takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort and you pour a lot of yourself into. And now players, the best players are pouring a lot of themselves into their characters. Mm -hmm. And that makes for incredible role play and great table dynamics and is a lot of fun. But, and DMs want to do that too. So I feel like, you know, saying, you know, am I, uh, most of the things that I make are marketed towards DMs because the the reality, and this is kind of a sad reality, is that DMs are the ones who are spending money. And, you know, I find it difficult. You know, I've been playing with the same group of players for about two years at this, no, more than that, three years at this point. Mm -hmm. We've been playing in campaigns together. They're really good friends of mine. Some of them are friends from in other areas of my life, not just D&D too. But I still feel weird asking 
them when we wanted to potentially make a switch to Foundry over Roll20. Mm. I was like, well, would everyone be willing to you know, chip in $5 yeah. for us to switch over? And I felt very awkward about doing that really? because mm. it's the expectation that I feel is that DMs spend the money. You know, DMs buy the extra books. Players might have, they have their PHB and maybe Xanathars, um, possibly some of the other character options. But DMs, you know, we've got the Monster Manual. I've got a bunch of Kobold Presses, Tome of Beast stuff all on my counter. I've yeah. got Kickstarters that I've backed. So I'm the one who's like, has so much of the content. I find that you market more to DMs because they're the people who buy the content to use for the players. And... One thing that even with these like player options, remember, I went back and I said, you know, we, I want players to have this evocation, this feeling like I want to build a character for this player option. Mm -hmm. One thing that I find a lot of tables have is DMs are kind of hesitant towards third party content for players mm -hmm. with good reason, because a lot of the random stuff that's like on D&D Wiki or on D&D Beyond, like homebrew stuff is not balanced. It's not <laughs> fun. And so DMs initially have a gut reaction of, no, I don't want to allow that at the table. Mm -hmm. So marketing player options and stuff and the DMs having it is because then the DM will be like, here are some additional player options from, mm -hmm. you know, that I found on this site that I think are balanced and here they are for you to use. Mm -hmm. So I feel like even though a lot of what I make goes to players and giving that feeling of wanting to play, I'm still marketing to the DM because mm -hmm. the DM is, you know, our is our table's gatekeeper mm -hmm. and they have to agree to let something at the table for it to happen. And if it's not official, there's a, there's a barrier there. So mm -hmm. I think it's better and it gets used more if you're, you know, giving stuff to DMs. Hmm. And you've really brought, uh, that's a very interesting point as well, this idea that it's kind of not free D&D. &D. Like, obviously we can, you know, use our minds. We don't have to buy dice. We can use dice rollers and stuff like that. But you're right. I, th I think the majority of stuff that I have DM'd is stuff that I have bought. It's not necessarily someone goes, oh, I think you should do this. And it's interesting, like, like just that story about you saying about switching over to something else. And I just hadn't assumed that because, yeah, you, you assume it's a, it's a experience with your friends. Like somebody would buy, say, the board game and then you all go play that board game over, over at a friend's house. You don't expect, you don't charge them five pounds to play the game or anything like that. So I, I think it's quite interesting, I guess, you know, ways of like, how do you make it so that people can share in that sort of experience, but without charging money for it because yeah because it's not i guess that sort of experience isn't it doesn't really come free really and in terms of not only just financial freedom but also like if you're a dm like you were saying sort of like when you're doing all this prep you want to make the world exciting for your players writing stuff you know having that the the time and energy to write down and create a world for them uh to to play in and then for you to be a part of it as well that's just that's very interesting i hadn't considered that actually as a as a point so thank you for that and yeah i think it's just something to really think about is you know, DMs are players too. They deserve to have fun. They, but you know, from a pure an aspiring content creator, the people who are going to buy the most things are probably going to be people who are DMs or want to be DMs. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean all people are going to do that. I definitely have people who I know are almost always just players who are my patrons or backed my last Kickstarter. Mm -hmm. And they just wanted the cool character options where they like reading through D&D &D books. This isn't a universal truth. Mm -hmm. It's just something that happens in our hobby. Yeah. And I don't necessarily know if it's a problem. I don't know if it's something that's bad. It's just kind of the reality of the world we live in. Mm -hmm. And as a person who makes D&D &D content, I know I'm supposed to say, you know, I, I don't do it for the money and I don't, you know, I could do so many other things and make more money. Potentially I do this because I enjoy it, yeah. but I can't make content full time if I can't pay my rent. Yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of the, the reality. And so that's why, you know, the majority of my stuff is made for DMs and my big Kickstarter stuff mm -hmm. is almost always marketed towards DMs. Like my next one, Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook mm. is mostly monsters, magic items. And then it's got a couple of player races mm -hmm. and some player options as well. But it's much more DM focused because 
it's a larger book, larger supplement. Let's go on to that then. So most, as most all of your work uh, sort of revolves around this character, Professor Gilroy. Can you tell us about, about this character and sort of why did you sort of use a sort of a, I guess, like a, a character to describe these, the, the classes and races and the and the sort of the monsters that you sort of come across in all of your supplements? I just, it's just a very interesting thing. I don't think I've really seen that per se in homebrew stuff before. Professor Gilroy is based on an NPC that I had in my very first D&D campaign, Professor Trayvon Laddergast. And he was this eccentric archaeologist who, who had like the players rescue him. And then an entire arc later, they go to a city, bring him back after they rescue him completely inadvertently. And then the ending of that arc was that he takes them on this adventure to find the lost city of Galadar. And lots of shenanigans happen, and he ends up sacrificing himself to save the party using the teleportation scroll, but not being able to go himself and, you know, and perishes. And I wanted to replicate that feeling of this beloved eccentric professor. Mm -hmm. And I chose Professor Gilroy because the first book, Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae, was about Celtic myth. And so I wanted a name that kind of evoked that more Celtic feeling. And then I kind of just stuck with it. He's such a fun character to write from. And a lot of the difference between my content and a lot of other homebrew content for these Kickstarters, these Professor Gilroys, mm -hmm. is that I try to write from the perspective of Professor Gilroy. So the idea with Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae and what's coming up with Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook is you open the book and you read a section mm -hmm. and it will have quips from Gilroy basically yeah. talking to the audience. In some places, there's advertisements saying, come to, you know, I'll tell you more about this if you come to my lecture <laughs> at the university. And it's, it's all about kind of a more personal connection. The goal is that this is not just a book that you can pick up and run, but that you could give excerpts of it to your players yes. and that they could find it in world and mm -hmm. read it. And that all the lore and the flavor of these creatures kind of cohesively fits into this narrative that the professor spins about different creatures. And it's very easy to, for a DM to say, oh, well, something changed because Professor Gilroy didn't get it right. Yes. And so using a forward facing, having this main character lets you create a more cohesive story and a more cohesive world building, even in something like the Guide to Fae that has no, it's not an adventure. It's not a module. There's no story, mm. but there is a, a flowing narrative and a voice throughout I love that. Again, that, yeah, I love that idea that you can give parts of the book out to your players and make that almost seem real. I'm, all, I'm a big fan of, again, I don't do it, but I'm a big fan of props when that happens. So I love that <laughs> idea that you could, like you said, like sort of photocopy a few pages or, or just leave the book aside. And if it comes about, they, they can look and read it in the break and just find stuff. And I love that joy of that idea. Yeah, like you said, the advertisers, like, you'll find out more on this lecture. Great idea. I love that sort of thing. So you said that your first sort of sort of project with this, the, the Fae was the theme. Why did you sort of pick that as the, the first sort of big theme then for this sort of, I, I assume, an ongoing series? Yeah, I'm working on a, a Professor Gilroy will be this Kickstarter and at least one more. And then I might be doing a little something different after that. Why I chose Faye to start was mm -hmm. I looked at all the monsters in d, d every single one. And I said, what is missing? Because as a designer, one thing I always ask myself is what is missing from 5e? You know, for example, there's not a lot of blood magic. So maybe that's an area I can explore. Because if you go into areas that aren't really explored in the official material, you're filling a need for DMs. There's like five Fey in the monster manual. And in all of D&D, there's maybe 25, 30. Mm -hmm. That's it. And there are so many amazing Fey creatures and myth and legends that we just haven't brought into 5e. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of where one of the reasons I started with Faye is because I saw that need. Mm -hmm. I, as a DM, was like, I want to do more Faye stuff. And then I was looking through all the official material and I'm like, okay, I get there's like four kinds of hags. Hags are cool, <laughs> but I've done hags. You know, what, yeah. what else do I got? Mm -hmm. And it's like, uni wait, unicorns are celestials. I've got pixies but only one kind of pixie. Mm. And so that's 
where I started was filling that need. And I'm Irish. I grew up with stories of Selkies and, you know, Kelpies and all different kinds of weird Irish and Celtic myth. Mm-hmm. And I decided that these creatures are insanely cool. Celtic Fae are some of the most amazing creatures in myth and legend. Yeah. But none, they're not really represented. And mm-hmm. so that's where I went. Do you have a particular favorite creature then in that uh, first project then? Yeah, I think my favorite creature is the Selkie. I love the movie, The Song of the Sea. Oh, that's such a great movie, yes. It's beautiful. If y'all haven't watched it, you should, because it's absolutely beautiful movie. And one one of the reasons I decided to really push forward was Celtic Fae was the Selkie was the first creature I made for this book. I made it at this point, Oh, almost a year ago to date, I was wow. sitting and I typed it out and I'm like, Celtic Fay, we're going for we're it. We're going for this. <laughs> stayed one of my favorites. Yes. I I like creatures that are a little lower on the CR. So, you know, it's a CR four. Mm-hmm. It could be good for maybe a level five party as a medium encounter or like pretty tough for a level three party. And it's just got such an amazing, you know, the Selkie has such an amazing story. It's a woman, a feminine fae who transforms into a seal. And a lot of the time they have a lot of interaction with mortals. Mm. They have mortal children, which is something else I brought up in Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fae is having a lineage where you are the child of a Selkie with a mortal. Oh, very cool. You know? And so bringing all of that together and creating this kind of myth of the Selkie was probably one of my favorite parts of making the book. Absolutely. And yeah, The, the Song of the Sea is such a, a, a beautiful film. And yeah, th- there's something amazingly interesting about Selkies as well. And obviously there's a weird connection to mermaids and everything like that, but on a deeper scale as well. So 100% any myth about Selkies, I'm like, yes, amazing work. <laughs> so let's move on then to obviously the main reason sort of you're here. So obviously you're about to launch your next project, which is the Heavenly Handbook. And I, 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 it's a big question, I appreciate, but like, how do you even go about starting? Like, because obviously it's ready for crowdfunding. You're going to sort of launch it up, hopefully in the next couple of weeks and stuff. Yeah, we're going to be launching on the 26th. How do you go about getting a project from sort of the brief to uh, Kickstarter or any other crowdfunding platform? So this is a really big question. Yes, and <laughs> very well. It, it's, it's, it's a lot more complicated than you even think. And one thing I want to say to all the content creators who are listening to this Kickstarter is hard. Mm-hmm. I have never had a project that was more challenging than Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fay, mm-hmm. And not just that it pushed me creatively, but also that it pushed me work-wise and pushed me as a project manager because there's mm-hmm. so much more that goes into it than just writing the content. Honestly, I would say writing the content was the easy part. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, when you, I wrote... of this 125 page book, Mm -hmm. we were, we were pushing over 50,000 words. Mm -hmm. It's a lot. So I'd say the first thing to start out with is actually the kind of your content. I'd say, you know, we we talk, you know, content's the easy part, Mm -hmm. but what is your theme? What are you going to be bringing to the crowdfunding platform? And why are people going to back you? That's the first thing you got to ask yourself. Why, why is someone going to spend $25, $50, $100 on your product? What makes it special? For example, Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook that's coming out, there are less than 10 angels in all of official D&D, every single source book. There's less than 30 celestials. While there are over 130 fiend stat blocks. Yeah, yeah. They, people love their fiends. <laughs> That's really irritating. <laughs> but here's the thing fiends, and, and this might be controversial, I'm sorry to anyone. Fiends are boring. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Fighting a giant incarnation of evil is fine. It's fun. But for me, good villains are the best villains. Yes. And I by agree. good, I mean good aligned. Mm-hmm. Having an angel that says, I'm going to destroy the city because it is ruled by vampires. But the vampires might not necessarily be bad. No. They might even be doing a pretty good job at running the city. And the players then have to decide, well, do we side with the vampires? Mm-hmm. Do we side with the angel? 
you know, and now they're put into this confrontation where they have to make a choice mm-hmm. that says who they are as characters. You know, are they going to stand by and let this city be destroyed? Are they going to assist the angel? Are they going to help the vampires make an alliance with creatures of the undead? And that's one of the things that I find very interesting. And, you know, when I'm asking, why is someone going to back this? For the Heavenly Handbook, there's not a lot of great celestial creatures. Mm-hmm. There's not, there's a gap in 5e for having amazing angels. In all of celestial creatures, all the angels, there's one CR4. Everything mm-hmm. else is CR10 or higher. Mm-hmm. There's not in almost all D&D, not all D&D, but the vast majority is played between levels one to levels 10. Mm-hmm. That's where D&D is mostly played. Mm-hmm. And so we have all these like, you know, wizards celestials are still pretty cool, mm-hmm. but we're not using them because yeah. I'm not going to throw a 20 CR 22 solar at yeah. my players. You're never going to, they're never going to get there. Absolutely. Yeah. The, most campaigns are never going to get there. And even if they do, a lot of DMs are going to probably run maybe something more traditional, dragon, beholder, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So if we want to have more celestials, my goal is the heavenly handbook isn't just celestials, but specifically a ton of celestial creatures for every level so that you can bring these creatures that are very neglected in 5D into your games easily. Mm -hmm. So when we ask, you know, why would someone back this? You know, why are we backing the Heavenly Handbook? That's kind of my my reason. Mm -hmm. There's not enough Celestials, and I think there's a need for those Celestials Mm -hmm. in 5D. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where I start. Why does someone back? Yeah, I was going to quickly just interrupt that because, yeah, I completely agree. Like, if you look at the Outer Plains in general, Mount Celestia gets, like, a tiny paragraph, whereas all the evil players get almost, like, two pages of stuff. So it is nice to see that. And I completely agree. Having stuff that is lower level, just so you had that chance to encounter it and not be, like you said, completely uh, obliterated or, or just be like, well, what's the point? You want, you like you said, there's something delicious about good intention villains and that you realizing like, Oh no, they're doing it for the wrong reasons. And that having that, that player, such a juicy narrative. So, so yeah, I completely see where you're going. So, so yeah, where do you go next after you've got the brief outline? So you have your idea, you have your, this is why someone would back your Kickstarter. And obviously you probably want to be confident that your, your content would be good. So I'd say, you know, quick sidebar, probably don't start with Kickstarter, but Kickstarter (laughs) is something to build to. And once you're here, you're like, okay, I've got good content and I've got a theme. Mm -hmm. You know, if you look at the most recent MCDM Kickstarter, they've raised almost, you know, tons of money. A lot of money. A lot of money. What's their theme? They want to create more interesting boss monsters. Mm-hmm. They're tired of legendary resistances. Legendary resistances are boring. Let's do more interesting design. That's mm-hmm. their thing. So now we've got our theme. Now let's think step two, our audience. Who am I making this for? Well, mm-hmm. this book is primarily marketed towards DMs. Mm-hmm. Over 40 stat blocks, 50 magic items, four player races. So almost all of this is DM facing material. Mm-hmm. So I'm marketing towards DMs. And now you've got to think, what's your marketing plan? What's your strategy for getting your Kickstarter out to people? Now, there's a ton of different tips and tricks for, you know, how do you succeed on the Kickstarter? But you want to have a kind of a solid marketing plan. That means, unfortunately, social media marketing. That means... Building an audience. You know, I have a Discord server, the NMDM Discord server. That's a place where a lot of people hang out, talk D&D, and a lot of those people are tuned into my content. And that's important because not only have I built relationships with these people and they're my friends and I know them, but they know me and they know my content and they know the quality that I deliver. Mm -hmm. So I've got to, you've got to build an audience. Not only find out, you know, who is my audience? I want to do this Kickstarter, so DMs. Then how do I get to those DMs? Mm -hmm. And so that's building your audience, doing social media. I mean, I usually post four times a day on Twitter, minimum, Mm -hmm. at least once a week on Reddit. I'm doing Pinterest now, which I'm very bad at, but I try. (laughs) I promise Pinterest isn't just for 40-year-old wine moms. (laughs) Yeah. There's a lot of D&D people who are on Pinterest. And then I have my Discord server. I'm going to be starting an email list. Mm. All of these kinds of things help to build your audience. 
you have a target audience. You know, I'm targeting basically all DMs. So, because I, I, I too have used Pinterest in the past. So, what do you would use it for for social media? So, is it would it be just putting your content up there, or is it would you be doing collections? Like, well, I, I'm very, very curious. Like, why would uh, how I would put you my content it? up there? Pinterest doesn't suppress links mm. because it is links. Pinterest most of the time is people linking to say a Reddit post or linking to an image on Imager. Hmm. Right. So they can't suppress links. So you can post your content and then post a link for me, almost all of it directs to my Patreon. Hmm. And then people go to your Patreon from there. So I just post my content. There are so many amazing homebrew monsters, Hmm. maps, so much great content you can find on Pinterest. If you haven't spent some time just like searching like tabletop RPG maps, if you're a DM and you use virtual maps, Let me tell you, you find some amazing free stuff on there. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I had no idea. So I definitely will be reactivating my Pinterest account and getting rid of it and just trying to, trying to get all the new boards and on tabletop RPGs. That's amazing. I actually had no idea about that. So. Yeah, Pinterest is really big for tabletop, which you know, I didn't know until I started talking to other creators. Mm-hmm. And that's a lot of way we're talking about building an audience. And, you know, you've got to get people who are going to see your product. Mm-hmm. A lot of building an audience is not only talking to just a DM, but to other creators as well. Mm-hmm. Oh, I've, there's so many great networks of creators out there. I'm pretty active in the hope for tabletop RPGs discord. It's a really amazing place. So many content creators and, you know, lots of players and DMs, but a lot of content creators supporting each other and helping each other mm-hmm. ready to answer questions that's one thing I always try to do in my server as well. Somebody says, Hey, Ben, I want to start making content. How do I do that? I always want to be able to take some time and show, you know, talk about, you know, what can you do to help build an audience up? Mm -hmm. But overall, you know, we've got the audience. We we're doing social media marketing. We're talking and building relationships with other creators. Mm -hmm. The most important thing in all of that is being genuine, Mm. you know, I talk to other content creators because I like their content. People know if you're just talking to them because you want them to boost you. Yeah. Or you want them to engage with you. People can smell that a mile away. (laughs) So it's important to find content creators whose content you enjoy to talk to. It's important to find and build relationships with your audience that's genuine that's based on shared interest and you know maybe it's interest in your content mm-hmm. but is built on this idea and community of dnd and so that's one thing that you know we're building an audience but an audience of people to see your content is more than just eyeballs and people to spend money it's building a community who are willing to support you and want to support you and they want to support you because you not only make a content but because you're genuine and because you want to hear what they have to say and want their opinions. So that's step two. We determine one, why would people back my product? Mm -hmm. Two, who's my audience? Then we kind of got that like second part. Now we got to reach that audience. That's going to be kind of our, our main or third thing. Now we want to go into creating and figuring out the funding and such for the Kickstarter. How much money do I need to make this happen? Mm -hmm. And I promise you, it's more than you think. (laughs) Yes, yes, I can imagine it is. Art is expensive. Mm -hmm. And I say this as someone who loves working with artists, who finds a huge passion in doing art direction. Finding good artists and being able to afford them is really tough. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that if you go and you look at a lot of good Kickstarter pages, they have a lot of assets. Uh, custom little headers, preview pages with beautiful art, splash art, all this kind of stuff is expensive. Mm -hmm. And so you want to think and set up how much money am I going to invest into creating my page? Mm -hmm. And that's going to be reflective of how much money do I need as a whole. So for example, for for Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fay, I set my funding goal at $7,500. And a lot of big Kickstarters artificially lower their price. You know, they say 10,000 or 15,000. They really need 50 or 60,000. They can't publish their massive books at (laughs) $10,000. But my Kickstarter, the first one, did truly reflect that was how much money it would cost me 
not even really paying myself. So that's kind of our next step. What do you need? How much art? If you're going to be making a bestiary, you're going to need way more art mm -hmm. than if you're making a module or a book of subclasses. Then are you going to write it all yourself? And if so, are you going to pay yourself up front? You know, I built in a very small amount of payment to myself and not nearly what I charge other people who asked me to do when I was writing <laughs> for these projects. My hope was that the Kickstarter would fund over and then I'd be, you know, that would be my, my more portion mm -hmm. than just building it in. So it's important to think about those kind of questions. Are you going to need another writer or another two writers? Are you then, you know, you're going to need layout if you can't do it all yourself. And that that should be the biggest theme of this step that you should take away is don't do it all yourself. <laughs> Even if you're good at decent at layout and you're a fine editor, obviously you always need editor no matter what, but yep. you're a good editor, you're a good writer and you're an artist, I still wouldn't do it all yourself. No. You've got to build your team. And so that's kind of that next big step is figuring out what is everything that's going to be in the book? How much is that going to cost me? And then getting the team together so that you could make this book. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of our next step. How much is, how much is it going to cost? Mm -hmm. And how much am I willing to invest up front in maybe paying people to do sponsorship ads, that kind of thing. That's our next step. Once you've gotten that, you set your funding goal. Next, we make our Kickstarter page. Mm -hmm. We talk about goals, price points. How much is someone willing to spend on this? How much would someone spend? And we build from there. And then that's when we create our Kickstarter page and get everything all together from a financial standpoint of this is how much money we, we know how much money we need. Now we're figuring out how much we can now charge for the product that we want to create and what we want to build on that page, putting assets and layout and all that kind of stuff together. So that's kind of how we, we get all started there. We know what we want. We know what is going to be in the Kickstarter. We know generally what we're going to be charging for the Kickstarter. And then that final step is marketing. Mm -hmm. getting that Kickstarter out to people. Now, we want to go all the way back to step three, where you're building your audience. You should already have an audience of people to go to, but with something like a Kickstarter, you probably want to expand outwards. So that's then going to be talking to people to do sponsorships, mm -hmm. um, advertisement videos. For example, for Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook, Nerd Immersion is going to be doing a detailed video breaking down my upcoming Kickstarter. Mr. Tarask will be doing one as well. I've been doing a lot of cross promotion where there've been lots of creators who content I love that I've been promoting to my audience and promoting their Kickstarters. And they in exchange will promote my Kickstarter to their audience, you know, and they like my stuff as well. So when we've built that audience, we want to expand a little bit outwards, maybe some paid ads or something like that. And then we're getting into, you know, Kickstarter launch and there's a whole bunch of stuff. So just, this is all before launch date. Yes. Yeah. Right. We had all of these steps. We had to have an idea. Then we had to figure out what, who was our target audience. We had to make sure that we built an audience of people from our target audience. Then we had to decide the build the team. How much is this going to cost me? Mm -hmm. Then we had to decide how much are we going to charge? What benefits and such are we going to offer to people? Mm -hmm. And then we have marketing. Mm -hmm. And that's all just to bring a Kickstarter to launch date we haven't even launched yet <laughs> it's interesting when you see a beautiful kickstarter page people will just seem it's seamless but as as you rightly pointed out it is getting that team together i think it's so important to have, like you always need an editor you always as if anything looking at the new dark souls rpg that's just come out they didn't have an editor or they didn't have a proofreader or anything like that so yeah i completely agree yeah it's it's not great obviously there's a lot to think about even just uh, that run up for like you said to, to launch the page to play out is there for you for that whole process obviously i know there's always like oh there's always delays or there's always obstacles but is there a bit of it that's like for you is like that this is the best bit about launching a kickstarter if you see what i mean like what obviously I, it sounds like it is a lot of work it's a it can be tiring exhausting tears can be had and stuff like that. but is there something that you like this is what it's what is it that makes it worth it i guess if you see what i mean so I'm right now, while I'm talking to you for everyone at home, I'm holding a book that I wrote and it's in my hands. Yes. I, I wrote that I wrote you 90% of this. I did the art direction. It is my, my name on the cover. <laughs> That's, I don't know how to describe the feeling of when I got my first test print and got to hold my book in my hands. And even if 
holding a book that I contributed to in my hand is a truly magical experience. And, you know, that comes after. But when we're getting the Kickstarter together, personally, I love coming up with our theme and you know, why would someone want to back this? Mm-hmm. And when I was making everything for the Heavenly Handbook that's going to be launching on the 26th of April, mm-hmm. what did I want people to see when they saw it? I wanted it to be clear. You're getting races, you're getting creatures, you're getting magic items, and then creating materials that are going to explain to DMs why, why do you want this book? Mm-hmm. You know, and coming up with this kind of like marketing strategy and the making advertisements and thinking about how can I get this out to a ton of different people? Mm-hmm. You know, one thing I did that it, it was shameless, shameless marketing ploy <laughs> here was on April Fools. I said on Twitter, you know, wizards and D&D beyond uh, or have agreed that every new source book will come with a free PDF. It was totally an April Fool's joke. But then in my comment was, you know, wizards would never do something so consumer friendly, but I do. Because one of my things, and this I truly believe from the absolute bottom of my heart, mm-hmm. every single tier, if it's a print tier of a Kickstarter, should always include a PDF. 100%. It is consumer friendly. Mm-hmm. It means your product is going to be used more. And that's the goal. I make these things for people to use them, not sit on their shelves. Mm-hmm. And PDFs are, are free, quote unquote. Yeah. It doesn't, I don't have to pay printing and shipping costs mm-hmm. for a PDF. Mm-hmm. I see these huge Kickstarters and they're going to charge you an extra 25 bucks for a PDF. I know. Wizards, you buy a $40 book. Yeah. They're going to charge you the same amount, you know, $25 on D&D Beyond. And I know Wizards and D&D Beyond are now together. They yeah. weren't they were at the before. time of this. Yes. Um, but I think that that's not consumer friendly. So that's one of the reasons I always include a PDF at every tier. You're backing at the lowest tier, you're just getting the PDF. But you back for the print tier, you get a PDF. Yeah. You back at the highest tier, you get a PDF. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously this was a shame. Like this was a marketing, like, a, like something that I wanted to do to showcase what makes my Kickstarter different than, you know, buying, why are you going to spend $25 on my Kickstarter and not buy, potentially not buy one of the newer D&D books? Mm-hmm. Here's the reason you're getting a PDF. Yeah, I agree. And so coming up with those kind of things and thinking about you know, how can I market this and show people why I believe in my product. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people sometimes get kind of icky about marketing or advertisements. Mm. And what I come from is I believe in my product. Mm. I use my creatures at my table, Mm. right? And so my goal is to show people why I think they should use that at the table too. It's coming from a place of these are things that I believe in. Mm -hmm. And I want to help convince you that this Kickstarter is worth believing in too. Mm -hmm. And so I want to kind of just shy away. I know we're talking a lot about marketing and advertisement here from marketing to advertisement doesn't have to be this kind of icky thing. Mm. It can be you telling people why you believe in your product. Mm. Because if you don't believe in your product, if you don't believe you're putting yep. something out there that people would do it, then you need to go all the way back to step one. <laughs> yeah. You know, that we talked about on this seven step Kickstarter journey. You need to go all the way back to step one. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. There is that sort of thing. I totally get it like networking i cringe at it myself because and maybe there's that imposter syndrome as well but yeah if you don't believe in your own work then who else is going to believe in it and it's it is so true there's that that just the confidence to do it and like you said that you sort of mentioned it before that just being honest and being truthful and then supporting people because people will will see that you're being genuine and that's that's the key thing that you can be grounded genuine and still believe you've got a good product because yeah it's just it's, it's just fascinating i guess maybe we are um not the not biased, but maybe that sort of thing when we see like Dragon's Den or Shark Tank, that sort of thing. And these people just come on with lots of bravado, but have a terrible product. So people see through it. So maybe they're like, oh, but maybe I don't have a, a good idea or a good product. And that's completely untrue. Like I said, if, as long as you're genuine about it and you believe in your stuff, the world is kind of your oyster. And I'm a big believer in that. And yeah, I just wanted to say as well, I completely agree with the PDF thing. There's a, a, a game store near me, which just basically every time you get a, a physical copy of a book, they instantly say, what's your email address? And then they send you the PDF right then and there uh, to your phone, essentially. So you've got it. And I think that's that's 
perfect because like you know you might be giving the pdf to somebody else or the book to somebody else but then you can at least have the, the digital version so you don't have to have the book with you and if you need to look something up and especially when more and more people are using digital devices at the table as well you might not want to take a huge book as you said to be left on the shelf and never be read <laughs> i just it's so bloody true that's one thing that i try to do with all of my kickstars and you know we, we've talked a lot about how we got up to launch date mm-hmm. after launch date the thing that's most important is being honest with your backers and communicating. I'm, you know, I had a lot of people say that that was one of the things that they most appreciated about Professor Gilroy's Guide to Fang was lots of communication. There's a delay. Here's why there's a delay. Let's not like hide behind office stations. Yes. Let's say here's there's a delay. You know, we we got set behind a couple of weeks because unfortunately, my layout artist Chris, his computer crashed. Luckily, we didn't lose everything, but we lost the InDesign file. And then he had to go and edit it in a different file. Like, yeah. And I, you, if you just tell people that, people understand. Yeah. My goal was to get everything out by the end of December. Mm-hmm. We ended up getting the PDF out to everybody end of January. Beginning of February. And then the prints halfway through February. That I mean that compared to most delays I've experienced on Kickstarter, that's nothing. <laughs> so and yeah. That is one thing I will tell people. Be very, you know, whenever you're backing a Kickstarter, there's always going to be a delay. I'm del- you know, we were planning on launching Professor Gilroy's Heavenly Handbook on the 19th, but you know, we had some delays and it's okay to push it back. Mm-hmm. Just be transparent about why you are pushing things back, communicate with your backers mm-hmm. and they'll thank you for it. Mm-hmm. You know, especially with like how the pandemic happened and global shipping is still a mess. Oh, terrible. Yeah. There was a Kickstarter that I backed and they, they had a very conservative printing goal. You know, they were like, it's going to take us, you know, 10 months to get this to print. And I thought that that was very conservative, especially considering they already had all the art done. Mm. so and but you know they still haven't gotten it yet but their stuff got trapped on a boat from china yeah and you know there's just nothing you do but if you they they've been communicating about it Mm -hmm. and you know am i disappointed yes but is it their fault no no and it's just important to to communicate with me because if i don't hear from you for three months and we all hear the horror stories of what's happened to people who've backed a kickstarter and then the person never delivers yeah we want you know be open and transparent you know going back to that you know we talk very big when you're building your audience opening transparency that's at every step you know <laughs> you've got your idea and then we're talking our target audience and then you're wanting to be you know genuine and not and like every step forward it is all about that yeah, it's it's actually surprising because I I 100% agree. Transparency is the way forward, and having that communication, regular communication, even if it's just like there's no update this month, but here's what we're still planning on doing, and here's you know any sort of update is better than no update. And I God, I wish my workplace actually did something similar because they just uh, communication is a very it's a very important skill, but people just don't seem to have it. But I completely agree that Kickstarter is you want to make sure you want people on your side and be honest with them because as soon as that book comes out, they're the ones that are going to be. You know, spreading the word they're going to be like oh i've used it at my table and all that sort of thing so you you know the customer is always right that's not really the phrase here but it's just like just be honest and you know you want people to enjoy your content tell them it's coming tell them what the the issues are and how you are solving it and and be honest about it it's just it's such an easy thing but some people really struggle to do it it's uh, yeah fascinating you screw up you pay up you know Mm-hmm. I had a I had an issue with someone's print copy where there was an incorrect version sent to them. I said, okay, I'll fix it. And then I'll send you a free, here, I'll send that to you. That's free. It shouldn't happen. Right? Yeah. It, just as long as you're honest with people, they're like, I have, I have no idea how this person got an incorrect version. Not a single other person did. But yeah. somehow they had the copy. They sent me a picture. Yeah. So fix it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and, yeah. You know, is it? Is it? It's probably drive-through RPGs fault, really. Right. But yeah. It's just easier, you know. I'm the Kickstarter. They backed from me. Yeah. I'm just gonna fix it. 
Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree. So I guess coming towards the end of this interview, obviously incredibly fascinating. And I, I, obviously you put a lot of thought into you know, creating content and also then the Kickstarter and fundraising in general. So and I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts on that. What would you say for someone who's right at the beginning, who's about to start writing their own homebrew content? Do you have any particular like one big tip or general advice you would give to that person? Write something that you will enjoy. Don't write it because you think someone else will like it. Write it because you want to use it. You enjoy it. If you write from a, from a place where like this monster, I think it's cool, right? You're coming up with your new monster to release and you think it's cool. That's the most important step. Mm -hmm. And after that, get somebody to proofread it. Yes. <laughs> Next most important thing. I I have ADHD and dyslexia. Mm -hmm. I like if my stuff isn't proofread, it's bad. <laughs> it is real bad. Like I don't want to show like the first draft of Guide to Faye, like the alpha. Oh my god. I it bad. <laughs> but but we all sure start that, from somewhere, so that's okay. Yeah, and, you know, this isn't you have to hire a professional editor. No. You know, this is show it to a friend or two and just have them look at it and they'll be like, you said intelligent save, but you're throwing a fireball at him. Yeah. Or, you know, you misspelled present and it's instead yeah. like it, something like that. It's really easy. Just, you know, have someone else look at your work before you throw it out there. Mm -hmm. I, I'd say that is... Those are the two big, th two biggest things. You got to believe in what you're doing. You've got to like what you're making. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to have someone else look at it. <laughs> yeah, you have someone else look at it and make it so that other people can enjoy it. And, and yeah. it's not just like, you just put it down on the page and then it's out there and done. Yeah, I completely agree. So I know obviously you've, you've got the Kickstarter about to go in a premium. And I always feel like this question is always a bit pointless because obviously it's like, well, you've just done this thing. You're doing this thing. What other plans have you got for the future? Do you have, uh, is there stuff that you can talk about? Is there, do you have an idea what you would like to see the rest of the year come out? Or are you just like, you know what? I'm just going to concentrate on this right now. <laughs> I'm, I'm in a concentrate now mode. Um, so for people who want to follow or keep up with my content, I post a lot of stuff on Twitter and becoming a patron is one of the best ways to get regular content updates from me. I do three big, three updates a month on my Patreon. I did a magical tattoo supplement last month. I'm working on a, vamp a vampire origin sorcerer for coming out this month. Mm -hmm. And I'm doing a bunch of really cool collabs um, with some amazing map makers and writing encounters and creating creatures for them. So I've got, a, I've got plans, mm -hmm. but Heavenly Handbook is the big thing for right now. Yeah. I would like to do another Kickstarter this year, mm -hmm. but... The thing about Kickstarter is until you've fulfilled, unless I think you've done four Kickstarters successfully with them, they don't let you open another one while you're still fulfilling. And that so makes total sense. Yeah. Heavenly Handbook is going to launch the 26th. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to do, you know, four weeks on Kickstarter. That puts us the 17th mm -hmm. of May. Mm -hmm. And from there, you know, one thing is a lot of the writing is already done. Yeah. I'm does from a design standpoint, I'd say when we launch, we will be 90% done with design mm -hmm. and probably 25% done with writing. Mm -hmm. But the real big barrier is art. You know, I'll only be 10% done and good art takes time. Yes. So, you know, then it's, you know, time for artists and then editing and revising and then layout. Whew. A huge portion there. And so if that gets in time, uh, maybe we'll see, you'll see another Kickstarter for me in October. Mm -hmm. uh, might have something to do with Japanese myth and legend. Oh, very cool. Because that's another neglected area of myth that isn't really transported well into 5e. Mm -hmm. So that might, you know, we might be getting that this year or next year. That's kind of the next bigger project on the horizon. But honestly, right now it's all like, got to get everything ready for the heavenly handbook. Yeah, <laughs> which which I, I have totally appreciate. So when I do ask that question and I see people go, really? I've just talked about all this stuff and you want to know 
more. So yeah, no, I, completely, <laughs> I completely agree with you on that. And honestly, you know, I, I have no doubt that it will could be well funded and over the target and stuff. So, but best of luck as well with that. Cause I, it's, it's exciting. And I'm so glad to, to speak to you uh, certainly about how passionate you are. Cause you know, we, there's designers who sometimes like, like you sort of mentioned that sort of idea that, you know, oh, well, I'm glad people enjoyed the Kickstarter. Well, if you don't believe in it, then people are like, oh, okay. But it's such a joy to talk to you because you are so passionate about it. So thank you. So my final, final question is you sort of mentioned it a little bit before, but where can we find your work and where can we follow you on social media, on Discord? Where can we find your stuff? Easiest place to find me is on Twitter, Twitter at NeverNotDM. That's where I am primarily. And then you can also find me at Patreon, NeverNotDM, NeverNotDM everywhere. Uh, And that's where you can find my work. Twitter, I release stuff free every week, do ask lots of questions. One thing that I really care about is I ask a lot of questions because I care about what people say and factor that into my book. I asked a question about two months ago. I was like, what makes you back a Kickstarter? Mm -hmm. And I got maybe a hundred responses or something. And I really like, I read every single one of them. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what people say is actually shaping how I'm approaching the the Kickstarter page this time. Mm -hmm. So I ask a lot of questions, engaging stuff on Twitter. Um, And if you want to more personal, you want to, you know, talk to me or get involved in the community. You can join the Discord, the Never Not DM Discord. Uh, I'm sure that you could find a a link uh, in the podcast description um, or you can find the link on my Twitter and come join and hang out. We do like monthly design contests for homebrew. We talk about world building and D&D and movies and stuff like that. You can come hang out there. Brilliant. Oh, thank you so much, Ben. I appreciate your time to talk to us. And like I said, best of luck with the Kickstarter. Thank you so much. We're, it's a nerve wracking experience, but (laughs) I'm just crossing my fingers at this point and going, I've done everything I can. Yeah. You've, you've, you are the manifesting it. It's it's now out into the (laughs) the universe as it was. No, I appreciate that. Thank you. 